Well, I could hardly put into words what a privilege it is to be here. Such, such an honour. I need to make um, a quick disclaimer. Some years ago, my wife and I were living and working in West Africa in a tiny little country called the Gambia. It's a small place. It's only 500 kilometres long and 42 kilometres wide. There's only a million people there. Fascinating place. And uh, we came back to Australia and I, after some years of fulfilling an obligation I had with my employer, pharmaceutical company at the time, I decided, my wife and I decided that I would go to Bible college. And at the end of my three years, almost at the point of graduation, I was in a dilemma. Should I go back overseas into missions activity, which was something that was very dear to my heart, or would the Lord have perhaps me pastor a church with a missions focus, stay in Australia and pastor a church, missionary or the pastorate. And it was a big deal for me and I didn't know what to do. And we come from a fairly large church in Adelaide and one Sunday night we're sitting in church, the preacher was preaching and and I was not sure what to do. Pastoral work or missions work, what would it be? And so during the sermon I whispered to my eldest daughter who was only four years old then, um, during the service, and I said, Sarah, do you, think Daddy, do you think Daddy should become a pastor like Mr. Dunn? Which is a little embarrassing that a grown adult man would ask his four-year-old what he should do with the rest of his life. Anyway, she's a reflective little girl. She thought about it for a little while, and then she looked up at me and she said, No, Dad, you're not that good. <laughs> and I thought, you rascal, just like your mother. Anyway, it's a long story. But that's the point. It's not that I'm that good, but the word of God is good. And the greatest miracle in all the world is not seeing someone raised from the dead, although I'd vote for that any day. The greatest miracle in all the world is not seeing someone who was born blind suddenly get their eyesight back. But wouldn't that be magnificent? The greatest miracle in all the world is not finding a cure for HIV AIDS, but we long for that cure. The greatest miracle in all the world is hearing the word of God and doing something with what you hear. So now we come to the point where we open up God's word. What a privilege. You seem like great people. Carla, I've only met you a few minutes ago. You seem like a great guy. And and I've got to know Martin and Margaret a little bit and Graham and Linda and they are great people. And I know a great couple here, David and Jennifer, who are visiting this morning. Great people. You seem like a great bunch of people but it begs the question, what does it mean to be a great person? Or put it this way, do you ever think of yourself as greater than King David? Or do you ever think of yourself as greater than Abraham? Or or ladies, do you think of yourself as greater than Queen Esther, who, who said, you know, if I perish, I perish, but the destiny of a nation is at stake? Now, if you answered no to any of those questions... I have a wonderful surprise for you from God's Word this morning. If you have your Bible, 
I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read it out, but if you have a Bible, you can follow along. And there's a surprise for us about what it means to be a truly great person today. Matthew chapter 11. Let me just read one verse to start with. Verse 11. It's the Lord Jesus speaking and he says this, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist is the greatest person born of a woman up to that point in time, which included just about everybody. So in Jesus' estimation, John the Baptist is greater than King David. John the Baptist is greater than Jeremiah. John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah. And then Jesus says, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So if John is greater than Isaiah and the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, then the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than Isaiah, right? Do you think of yourself as in the kingdom? Are you people of God? Are you followers of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then how dare you not think of yourself as greater than Isaiah? You say, well, wait a minute, there's got to be something wrong with this argument. Doesn't there? No, it's, it's a very good argument. You just need to see the flow of the passage and see how it kind of all works out. What is the link between great people and mission? And so the Lord Jesus gives us, in this passage, three portraits. The first portrait is, is the picture of a discouraged Baptist. And I'm not speaking denominationally here, but anyway. Picture of a discouraged Baptist. Go back to verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now you have to ask yourself the question, why is John kind of having second thoughts about who Jesus is? Why is he kind of going into a period of discouragement or perplexity or doubt? Why is he asking this question? Are are you the one who was to come, Jesus? Are you the one I've been preaching about? Or should we be looking for someone else? Why does John go into a discouraged episode here? He's not merely trying to manipulate things. Why is he having second thoughts? After all, at this point, he doesn't know that he's about to lose his head in three chapters. He's just spending a few weeks in prison. And prison is not a pretty place, but Christians back then and today have suffered much worse than this. Much worse. You saw the clip up there about how some of our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Vietnam and China are treated for their faith in Jesus Christ. Just two weeks ago I was in Amsterdam and I got to visit Corrie ten Boom's house and to see the suffering that people endured afresh 
because they're followers of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is not in a nice place, but he's not doing it as tough as many Christians do it. So why does, he, why does his faith flicker just because he's spending a few weeks in jail? Well, the context shows that the reason John is having second thoughts about whether Jesus is the Messiah or not is because what he preached about the Messiah is not being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, John the Baptist preached that when the Messiah comes, he he would thoroughly clear his threshing floor. When the Messiah comes, John preached, he would separate the wheat from the chaff. When the Messiah comes, the wheat would be gathered into barns and the chaff would be bundled up and would be burned. In other words, John preached, when the Messiah comes, everything would change. Evil would be overthrown. The vindication of God means that sin will not have the last say. When the Messiah comes, John preached, everything will be different. And here's Jesus going around the countryside, healing people and telling nice parables and all that. Meanwhile, Rome is still Rome. Corruption is still corruption. Sin is still sin and prison is a horrible place. And so he says, are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now how does Jesus reply to this question? Jesus replies by quoting from the book of Isaiah. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah because John the Baptist is very familiar with the book of Isaiah. After all, when John preached, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, that's drawn from Isaiah. So Jesus responds to John's question by quoting from a book that John the Baptist knows very well. So if I said to you this morning, For God so loved the world. Where's that from? John chapter 3 verse 16. Now how does the whole verse go? For God so loved the world. Okay, so you know the whole verse, right? I quote a a tiny little bit of a verse that you've memorised and you can draw the whole context. You know it's about Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. You can quote the whole verse. If I say, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, what's the next bit of that verse? Okay, and where's that from? Psalm 23. Or, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Which book is that from? What chapter? 53, you see. So I just say a small portion of a verse you know and you can draw up the whole context. Or I say, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now it's getting a little harder. But you get the idea, right? If I cite a portion of scripture that you know well, you've memorised, you've studied or you love, you can draw up the whole context. So now Jesus responds to John's question by citing a little bit from a book John knows well. John has studied this book. 
So now Jesus answers by describing his own ministry in the terms of the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 4. Jesus replied. So you've got the scene right. John is in prison. He has his own followers. He sends them to ask Jesus the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? Jesus sends them back with this reply. Go and tell John this. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. This couple of verses are merely paraphrases from the book of Isaiah. And John the Baptist knows the book of Isaiah. So, in Isaiah 35 it says... Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Almost exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Similarly in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. In other words, Jesus quotes from Isaiah because John knows Isaiah, but here's the thing. Both those passages that Jesus quotes from contain judgment as well as blessing, but Jesus doesn't quote the judgment bit. He only quotes the blessing bit. So in Isaiah 35, just before it says that Um, blind people will see and deaf people will hear and lame people will leap. The verse before says, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. In Isaiah 61, just after it says, the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor, verse 2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Now what is Jesus doing? John says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Because you are not doing what I said you would be doing when you came. Jesus is saying this, look around you John. The blessings foretold by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier are already operative. The blessings have dawned. Blind people can see. Deaf people can hear. Lame people can walk. The dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. But the judgment hasn't come yet. And so he says in verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, just because God is not doing the things the way you think they should be done, John. And according to your timing and your purposes, it does not mean that God is not fulfilling his plan. The judgment will come, but just now is a time of blessing. The blessings have dawned, the judgment will come later. So, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, John, hang in there. Persevere. Don't fall away. Blessed is the man who does not fall away 
on account of me. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I certainly can. Sometimes God does not do things in the timing I wish he would, as if I knew better. But God says, I have a plan. It's a glorious plan. It's a redemptive plan. It's purposeful and it will be fulfilled and my timing is perfect. Just because God doesn't do things the way you think he should do them does not mean God is not in control. I get to travel a bit in in the work I'm involved in these days as a director of a mission organisation. I travel around Australia a lot and I travel internationally quite a bit. And when I'm away, my children like to sleep with mum and they take it in turns. And and not so much the older one now, but she did all those years and they would fight over who gets to sleep with mum while dad's away and they would take it in turns. And I know some of you will say that's very, very bad. You shouldn't let your children sleep with you when they're little because they'll never grow out of it or something. But I used to sleep with my parents when I was a little boy and I hardly ever do now. So... (laughs) But it reminds me of a story of a, a, a little boy whose, whose mum had to go away so father and son slept in the same room one night and dad slept in that bed and the son slept in that bed. And, and are your kids like mine? Like, it's night time and they're like wide awake. Like at night time I'm exhausted and I can't wait to sleep but this little boy is like my children. Like, it's time for sleep and they're like bing and the lights come on and they're like ask lots of questions and they're talking and chatty and this little boy is chatting with his dad. And after a little while, the daddy says, son, I want you to go to sleep now. It's, it's, it's getting late. Good night, son. Good night, dad. And it's blissfully quiet, exactly like that. And it's blissfully quiet. You know, that, that peace and quiet that a parent you know, dreams of. And it's gorgeous. For about 30 seconds. And the little voice pipes up again and chats for a little while. And dad says, son, I, I, I really want you to go to sleep now. It's late and it's dark. Go to sleep. Good night, son. Good night, Dad. Quiet. And the little voice breaks the silence one more time and says, Daddy, is your face turned my way? And now the father just loses it. Um, Just gets so cross. I mean, not like me, but like Martin or someone. Just like a wild man. And he gets so cross with his boy and says, Son, I've told you it's late and it's dark and I've got to go to work tomorrow and you've got to go to school. What difference does it make? if my face has turned your way. It's dark. And the perceptive little voice comes back one more time and says, Daddy, it's because it's dark that I need to know your face has turned my way. Now for John, it's dark prison. He needs to know, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? You're not doing things the way I thought you would. What is it like for you right now? I don't don't know if it's dark, I don't know if it's difficult, I don't know if you're in a good place. But if it's dark for you right now, God's face is turned your way. Because his eyes are always on his people. Hang in there. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Well, that's the picture of a discouraged Baptist. But the second portrait, verse 7 and following, is the portrait of a defended Baptist. So you can picture the scene. John's disciples go back and the crowd with Jesus begin to speak about John. And it's as though Jesus doesn't want the crowd to say bad things about this great man. Look at verse 7. Jesus begins to defend John. As John's disciples were leaving, the crowd began... uh, 
Oh, sorry, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John because there would be murmurings and whisperings. You could imagine them saying, Phew, John the Baptist, what kind of a wimp is he? Spends a few weeks in jail and then his, his faith's in crisis. Glad we changed our allegiance from John to Jesus. John the Baptist. But Jesus doesn't want them speaking like that. So he begins to speak to the crowd about John. Verse 7. What did you go out into the desert to see? You know that John didn't preach in the cities. He preached in the wilderness. He must have been some preacher because people left the comfort of the city to go out into the desert to hear this man preach. What did you go out into the desert to see? Jesus asks. A reed? A reed swayed by the wind? Have you seen a reed swayed by the wind? It will look something like this. This is going to look very effeminate. <laughs> a reed swayed by the wind? Is that, if the wind blows that way and it kind of blows, that looks ridiculous, but you get the idea. Is that what you went out to see, some kind of weakling? Some kind of wimp? Someone with no backbone? Is that what you went to see, a reed? Swayed by every wind of doctrine? No. See, Jesus knows that they left the comfort of the city to go into the desert because John the Baptist was an outstanding voice preaching righteousness and integrity calling the nation of Israel to repentance. They did not go out to see a weakling. Well, Jesus says, verse 8, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Do you know what John the Baptist wore? Camel's hair and a leather belt. I mean, he was a strange man. He ate the simple food of an ascetic described by Amos eight centuries earlier and wore those clothes. He ate wild honey and locusts. They did not go out to see a weakling. They did not go out to see someone really posh. Posh people are in king's palaces. Then verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. More than a prophet. In what sense was John the Baptist more than a prophet? He was a prophet, yes. He came proclaiming the word of God, but he was more than a prophet. Well, in what sense was he more than a prophet? Well, Jesus explains in the next verse, verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now Jesus isn't quoting from Isaiah, he's quoting from Malachi. And the particular prophecy that he quotes is a prophecy about someone who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. He's saying... John the Baptist is more than a prophet in this sense. Not only did he come proclaiming the word of God, but John the Baptist is himself the subject of prophecy. Malachi, centuries earlier, said 
This, uh, Jesus says, this is the one that Malachi was speaking of centuries earlier. I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, ahead of you, Jesus, and he will prepare the way for you. The particular prophecy makes John the Baptist out to be the one who prepares the way for the visit of Jehovah. In other words, what makes John the Baptist more than a prophet is simply this. It is John the Baptist who introduces Jesus to the world. That's what makes him more than a prophet. He's the one who prepares the way for the Lord. Do you see? This is what makes him more than a prophet and it's within that context that Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. Which always makes you kind of smile when Jesus says that because he doesn't always say that. So it's like, oh, is this bit true, Lord? What about the other things you said? You didn't say those things were true. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, or in the King James Version, verily, verily I say unto thee, or truly, truly I say to you in the New King James, or most assuredly I say to you in the Revised Standard Version, or in this one, I tell you the truth. Jesus is saying this, what I am about to say next, you are going to have a hard time believing. What I am about to say next will blow you away, but it is true. I tell you the truth. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And people don't believe that. I tell you the truth, unless you have the faith of a little child, like these children sitting here, childlike faith, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, adults don't like hearing that. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Suppose I stood up this morning to, to preach and, and, uh, and I said, just after Martin had sat down, if I said these words, I tell you the truth, Martin Dingamans is the greatest man who's ever lived. See you nodding your head there, Martin? Some agreement. <laughs> I tell you the truth, Martin Dingamance is the greatest man who has ever lived because he introduced me. <laughs> it's exactly what Jesus is saying, except not about Martin and me. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived because he introduced me to the world. You see, earlier, John the Baptist had borne witness to Jesus. And John the Baptist said things like this. How can we avoid rejoicing at the coming of the bridegroom? I am not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. 
That's what John said about Jesus. But when Jesus spoke about John, he said he's the greatest man who ever lived because he introduced me to the world. You see, there's a sense in which Jeremiah pointed to Jesus. There's a sense in which Abraham pointed to Jesus. There's a sense in which David pointed to Jesus. There's a sense in which Isaiah pointed to Jesus. But on the whole stream of redemptive history, it's given to one man, John the Baptist, to say, there he is. You read about it in Matthew chapter 3. He's the one I've been telling you about. He is the one I've been preaching about. He is the one I came to prepare the way for. He must increase, I must decrease and that is what makes John the Baptist the greatest man to ever live up to that point in time. The portrait of a defended Baptist. Finally, Jesus gives us the picture of an overshadowed Baptist. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now when you make that sort of comparison that B is greater than A and C is greater than B, which is what the text says, then you have to assume the same scale of comparison right across A, B and C. Otherwise the whole thing falls apart. It doesn't make sense. In other words, you can't say B is greater than A in, in military strategy and, and strength, but C is greater than B in intelligence and charm. I, I can't say to you, my daughter is the best girl, the best student in the whole school because she's very good at mathematics. And then you say to me, but no, my daughter's the best child in the whole school because she's the fastest swimmer. It doesn't make any sense. You've got to assume the same scale of comparison for any comparison to make sense. So when Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, we must assume the same scale of comparison as when the text says, John the Baptist is greater than all those who came before him. Now what made John the Baptist greater than Isaiah and all who came before him? Well, he could point out Jesus more directly than anyone who came before him. And what makes the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John is that it is given to us. The least in the kingdom maybe to say more comprehensive things about Jesus Christ than even John the Baptist. True greatness is wrapped up in our capacity to point out who Jesus is to the world. The person who's been a Christian for three weeks can say more comprehensive things about Jesus than John the Baptist could. See, John the Baptist doesn't know that in chapter 14 he'll be beheaded in order to increase the ecstasy at a party that Herod was holding. John the Baptist doesn't see the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't see 
the cross and Easter. He doesn't see the coming of the Spirit of God in a way he hadn't come before. He doesn't see the explosive expansion of the church across the known world. See, this passage isn't saying that if we're greater than Jeremiah or David or Isaiah that we're greater in every way. It doesn't say that we're greater in patience than Job or greater in prophetic word than Isaiah or greater than Solomon in wisdom or greater than David in military strategy. It says we are greater than John the Baptist in the same way that he was greater than all those who came before him. But for Jesus to speak this way presupposes that mission, evangelism, sharing about Jesus is a part of the fabric of the Christian life. So let me conclude by asking you another question. In what does your greatness consist? What is it that makes you a great person? That you have a postgraduate degree? that you're well studied? In what does your greatness consist? That you have more money in the bank than someone else in the room? What is it that makes you a great person? That you're well travelled, you own your own home, you've got two cars? In what does your greatness consist? Your charming personality? Your rugged good looks? Your outstanding physical prowess? Your distinguished intelligence? No. Our significance as men and women, as human beings created in the image of the living God, is wrapped up in our capacity to point out who Jesus is to the world. That's where our self-identity lies. We are Christians. Is what makes us the greatest people who have ever lived. We get to point out Jesus to people who don't know him. So if you knew Jesus were coming back in uh, three weeks, would you radically change the way you're living? Because if you would, you need to radically change the way you're living. When you gave your life to Christ, it was like a blank sheet of paper like this and across the top it said, God's will for my life, sign here. And he slid it across the table and you kind of looked at the thing and said, Jesus says, I want you to sign here. It says, my will for your life. And you kind of go, but wait a minute, I can't see the detail. And the Lord Jesus says, no, I know, this is my will for your life. You, all you have to do is sign here and trust me. I wonder... Would you have signed that piece of paper if it said, God's will for my life, disability? Sign here. I wonder if you would have signed it. God's will for my life, poverty. I wonder if you would have signed it then. God's will for my life, to be unattractive to the opposite sex. I wonder if you would have given your life over to Jesus. What about this? God's will for my life. Missions. 
wonder if you would sign on the bottom line and trust God with whatever he has in the unwritten detail for your life. Because our significance as men and women, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as people of God, is wrapped up in our capacity to point out who Jesus is to the world. And the world is desperately waiting to hear. People here in Launceston and greater Tasmania, people across the known, the whole world. One of the quotes on the clip said, it was by Carl Henry and it said, it's only good news if it gets there in time. Could we be people who are passionate about pointing out who Jesus is for the sake of other people? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts and it's beyond words to say thank you for all you are, all you've done and all you're doing. We rejoice in our salvation. We worship you. Father, would you help us to be people who point out who Jesus is to precious people in this world, all for your glory and your eternal purposes. Amen.